Hello and welcome to the Startups Roundtable. I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hello and welcome. Tony Hackett is my name and I'm your host at the Startups Roundtable where we get to speak with founders and other people involved in the startup ecosystem. Today's conversation has its roots in two separate episodes of this podcast. On episode three, I was joined by Tim Demetrio, who is a co-founder of Pencil, where they help small businesses control their trade credit. At the end of the recording, Tim and I discussed having a founder from another startup as a guest in a future episode to generate conversation from the perspective of different startups. On episode 7, I was joined by Dan Pantello, the founder of Marpipe, where they use the power of data to improve the performance of ad creative for their customers. Once you start listening, it doesn't take long to recognize the value of being able to eavesdrop a conversation between founders in different markets trying to solve similar problems. So let's get underway. And first up, we will hear from Dan Pantello. My name's Dan. I'm the founder and CEO of Marpipe.com. So we are the first multivariate testing platform for advertising creative. What that means in really simple terms is we allow any brands who are spending any amount of money advertising online, discover really quickly what visual creative is going to work the best for them. We live in a world today where your advertising performance is most impacted by what your creative looks like. And when it comes to the creative process today... Everyone's kind of just guessing and checking. And we allow you to actually take a totally data-driven approach to understanding what your best ads will look like in the best case scenario. We built our platform. We rolled out the private beta in Q3 to an incredible response. We Right now, for better or for worse, COVID has had some actually really positive impacts on technology and SaaS providers in our space. We had a little bit over 80% month-over-month revenue growth in Q3. And coming into Q4, it looks like that trend is staying strong, if not escalating. And so right now, what we're working on is building out more features to be responsive to our customers and users on the platform, more integrations with different ad networks. And right now, actually hiring is a big challenge. You know, Right now, we're actually looking to grow out our sales and customer success team. Because uh, up until this point, we've been primarily founder-led sales. At this point, I can only convert so many deals in a day. <laughs> so we've got to bring on some folks to help. So that's, uh, that's what we're up to today, scaling the business. Yeah. So from my end, I'm Tim Demetriou, founder and CEO of PencilPay. We are a B2B account management platform, which practically means we simply put a widget on your website to set up your customers with an agreement and saves payment method in under 60 seconds. That's kind of what we do as far as driving our customer base and driving our revenue base. We've been around for about two and a half years with mixed success, I guess. The last six months for us has been exactly the same for Dan as it has been for Dan. It's been really, really, really fast and really, really busy. We've kind of grown our revenue this month from last month about 300% and the previous month another 300%. So the last two months have been especially good for us. And then if you look at our customer base, we really um, started to grow our customer and our partner network in about April or May. We raised a little bit of capital up until March. And then once we had a bit of money, we were able to 
focus on running the business rather than focus on capital raising, which for me was an enormous change. And that's allowed us to, again, as Dan said, do founder-driven sales very heavily. I've made every sale in the business so far. And again, we need to be able to you know, scale out our team as well. I think it's been amazing for SaaS businesses. You always got to look at these positives. But I think it's been incredible for businesses that are SaaS businesses. I think it's been horrible for basically everyone else. And I think, Tony, when we spoke last, it was just kicking in. Corona was just kicking in and everyone was starting to get a bit concerned. So a lot's changed in the last four or five months. I'm so glad you raised the point about partners. And when I went and refreshed myself on the Pencil Pay story, it was clear to me that there's been a lot of work done by you and the team around partners. Could you maybe share some of the challenges and surprises in getting that to where it is today? Yeah, for sure. So we set out at the back end of last year to begin building some integrations. I think that we decided after we were in the Startup Bootcamp Accelerator, we decided to that growing our partner network was going to be the way that we were going to acquire customers in the same manner as the zeros of the world had done it previously and put such a nice infrastructure in place. So we went and found a bunch of cloud integration partners and had a lot of conversations with them. But then we went and made really good, strong relationships with software partners. So we were in the Zero App Store, QuickBooks App Store, the Myob App Store, the Deer Deer Systems App Store, as well as the Unleashed App Store. And we've got a partnership with API partnership with Equifax as well for credit reporting. So I guess what we've done is we've looked to the the biggest players in the SME space across both inventory as well as accounting. And obviously Equifax being the largest in in the credit reporting space. So we've managed to develop those relationships. They've been fantastic from a number one, there's certainly been a few referrals come through those partnership networks. But number two, what it allows us to do is capture the right data to be able to make better decisions. I think that when when we integrate with accounting and inventory platforms from a particular SME or supplier, we get a really good indication of how we can help them, how we can help them quickly. But that also adds to our trade credit algorithm, which we've been building for the last nine months. That's brilliant. Dan, Since we spoke, the thing that's been on my mind from the first time we did speak was how you serve creatives and creatives served you and the other sellers. I'm wondering, has there been a shift in the demands of the creatives and also of the sellers on what you're delivering today and also your maybe your product development path? Yes. So two big things I I, like immediately come to mind. When it comes to how people are making creative today, it's so much more decentralized as a process, which is good for us. Collaboration between marketers and creatives. Marketers can just find really good performing ads because they can quickly create and launch hundreds of them in minutes with our platform. But creatives can understand what makes those ads work. Like, hey, we should always use green as a background color, no matter what it's combined with. It's always increasing our performance. Or maybe product number three is actually always bringing down our performance whenever it makes an appearance in one of our ads. We should include that going forward. Now, this is creating, this is creating an interesting use case. Right now is a really interesting time for new product development. So a lot of direct-to-consumer e-commerce businesses are actually experimenting with developing and shipping and bringing to market new products because of how everyone is buying everything online today. They're scrambling to fill vacuums. What's interesting, what you could do on our platform is actually product market validate new products, even new features for your software before they even exist and understand if you're going to drive ads eventually to fill your funnel and convert you know, people for that product or, or that software, what you could do is actually generate a bunch of creative advertising scenarios, actually test them really quickly in the market 
and identify your best case scenario customer acquisition cost. So then you can determine whether the, the unit economics work out for you and it's worth it for you to manufacture this product or to build out this software feature. And in that case, if you do that, then and, and it works out for you, there's no mysteries at the end of the line. Like you know exactly what your best audience and ad combination is going to be and you know what your CAC is going to be. So people are coming to us with this really interesting use case that's being used by venture studios and companies that have like large product catalogs and really innovative and fast-moving software companies. Now, the second thing I'll note in terms of how has it shifted our product roadmap, we were originally, so right now we integrate in terms of where to advertise with Facebook and Instagram. It's the most popular digital platform for advertising. We're not there because it's cool. We're there because everyone uses it. Now, the second most popular is Google, but the fast-growing advertising network right now that we're most excited about is actually Amazon. A lot of uh, direct-to-consumer product companies are actually shifting their budget really dramatically into Amazon because of how much Amazon activity and like shopping activity has increased since COVID. Like I'm talking to businesses that are like, yeah, your tool is great for Facebook, but we spend 5K a month on Facebook and we're actually spending like half a million bucks a month on Amazon. And I'm just like, wow. So <laughs> this has shifted our actually like our product priority in terms of which ad network to integrate with next. We're really excited about the growth we're seeing in Amazon as an e-commerce platform and the sophistication and functionality of it is really underdeveloped, creating like an interesting blue ocean of opportunity there. When you go to Amazon, or well, I find the um, shopping experience is certainly you know nowhere near the shopping experience of some of the other platforms. From a so you think about the you said the blue ocean or blue sky blue sky that's a, that's available for them. It's quite scary considering they're dominating the market already, and then they've got all of this upside if they clean up their platform a bit. Any UX designer who takes a look at the Amazon homepage will be the first to tell you that one. You know, Amazon, one of those sites where if you can just tweak one thing or make one thing, you know, a fraction of a percentage more efficient, that's like tens of millions of dollars in opportunity. You've got to think why. You have to think to yourself, why are they holding back? Because they've certainly got the resources to be able to do what the, whatever they want to do. But it's interesting why, if they're just saving it all for one big whoosh. Yeah, I, I think they're spread thin in between all their different lines of business. They're doing like in between manufacturing their own products, in between being a technology company that provides server space like Amazon AWS, in between investing into building out machine vision technology, home delivery. They're spread thin. Tim, when you look to draw people to your business and not only noticing that you've done so much with partners, but focused a lot on content creation, has that been paying off for you? One thing that has certainly paid off as far as that content creation has gone is we kicked off a podcast, which we've done, I think, about four, three or four episodes of. And what I found was not an immediate upside, but I found that when I started to do a lot of research, which I've just been doing over the last five or six weeks, I've had conversations with about 65 odd bookkeepers in the last five or six weeks. And because we're building out a new payables feature. So prior to building out any new feature, I get on the phone and I get some proper qualitative data before we do anything else because I think it's super important to hear from the user first and actually see what they want if they would use the particular feature. And what I found was before every conversation, I would say in about 60 or 65% of cases, there was the bookkeeper saying, oh, I just watched some of your podcasts or I just, you know, I just heard a few of them listen to our previous interview, Tony, as well. So there's certainly, as long as people know about you, I think that the content side of things is really, really beneficial, especially video content. 
if people um, know about you. I think from a marketing perspective, we've, we haven't seen a huge upside in terms of the number of new customers. We've seen the biggest upside has been validation from those new customers. We get a lot of our referrals, our customer referrals directly from our partners, being software or integration partners or cloud partners or accountants, bookkeepers, that type of thing. And what we find is for validation that we exist and validation that we're a you know a decent sized company that can build pretty cool software, that content has been a really, really good backer for us. It's been really positive, but not from a pure direct customer acquisition perspective. Tim, just to hop in on that. We spent a good amount of time building out our content strategy at Marpipe, and we, we have a pretty high domain rank and authority at marpipe.com as a result of that effort. And we've seen that the impact on conversion hasn't been high, but the impact on depth of content for existing users to explore and stay within our ecosystem is where it's been paying off. It's almost like a retention activity rather than an acquisition activity now, which is really interesting. I don't think folks have been thinking about it that way lately, but that's what the performance results of it has been. And maybe it makes more sense to have them to approach content strategy with more of a retention angle than an acquisition angle. Especially from a SaaS perspective, but I can only speak for my business model and, and my business model is the longer that a SME or supplier stays a customer of ours, the more and more of their clients they've got onboarded and set up for auto billing, which means the monthly recurring revenue has been growing month on month from each customer. So each customer is not limited to a license fee. Each customer is actually growing. Their revenue is growing month on month by you know, 20, 30% at the moment because they've got so many more of their customers to onboard and, and get onto auto billing. So they just slowly do that over time. Dan, you raise a really interesting point about retention. And the company I work with, we've gone through a couple of rounds of LinkedIn training. And some of it's been at a basic sort of a housekeeping level. And then the next round was at a a slightly higher level. And that training and my thinking out of it has been largely around how do you attract. But your point around retention, you've actually just made me think about that in a totally different way because it's especially Tim you put the SaaS model in play there so how do you make sure people stay thinking about you and keep keeping front of mind but the one thing that I've spoken with my colleagues about is how do you maintain the energy and sustain so maybe Dan I'll come back to you that content creation how do you maintain the flow of energy and also the creative to keep producing content that matters Yeah, that's something I struggled a lot with until I heard this quote. And the quote goes, repetition never spoils the prayer. And once you can internalize that, you kind of have a new lens on things. So often, a lot of what we do in business, it's like a niche thing. Most of us don't have products that do that cover like many aspects of many different things all over the place, unless you're Amazon. But when it comes to being a niche subject specialist, you do end up rehashing and revisiting a lot of the same subjects and staying on top of them as they continue to evolve. And your job is to establish yourself as a thought leader in those kind of quickly evolving and growing things. And and so oftentimes, you, you do catch yourself making and constantly iterating on content that may feel from a creator's perspective as repetitive. For example, how many more times are we going to try to explain to people the value of multivariate testing? At what point can you look at content that you've made and be like, okay, well, there's actually, we could apply it to all of these other potential subjects. We could iterate on our perspective here on how we present it. We can uh, innovate on formats. 
So from blog posts into audio and social content and so on. And the resourcefulness has to come from within and from having the right perspective on iteration of like content you've made. Sometimes you will have a scenario if you take this approach of making a piece on the best practices for multivariate, for multivariate testing, let's say, which is like a niche subject and we'll create our third iteration of a piece of content like this, where we talk about it in a certain different light and it just hits different. And that piece of content will rip. It, it'll explode. Like it'll actually become so much more popular than the previous one, just because we've taken a, a new lens or we've iterated on the format or how we present it. And so it, it's just about taking swings. Like how many at-bats are you going to give yourself? That's kind of my approach with content. How do you decide how narrow that you go? Because obviously the area that you're in is a, it's unique and it's probably not a widely talked about area. I'd be really interested to understand with your content. So do you focus on just the user and just really hammer that point home or do you go broad and then slowly corral? We do a high volume of experimentation and we do both and see what works. Like what works for us as a company in a niche but fast growing space is different than what will work for any other company. We found that we can really establish very rapid search engine dominance by going niche and just talking about multivariate testing for creative. Like if you're going to Google it, you're going to see our content. That wasn't hard to do because there's just not a lot of folks doing it. I wouldn't recommend for anyone to sit there and try to predict whether they should go narrow or go wide. I would say do both and see what happens and continue to do both. One thing I'll pepper in is just because you tried something and it doesn't work doesn't mean the thing doesn't work for you. A lot of people will be like, I tried to do content like this. It just didn't hit. That doesn't mean that content format doesn't work. That just means you didn't do it the right way. And what could be improved? What could be done better? Don't give up on continuing to iterate in areas that haven't previously been successful for you. Because if you increase the volume of experimentation that you do on things that you put out there, you will hit eventually if you learn from why things don't work. Yeah, that's why the platform's so um, important that you're actually advertising on. I think that a lot of the problems is people put the wrong content on the wrong platform, which we see we see all the time and every day, and it doesn't go anywhere. But if it was on the right platform with the right audience, it, it would fly. But we see that error so much. And I've made that error. I've made that error how many times, you know? How have you found running the business and then being sitting front and center with that content creation, with the recordings that you're doing right now, that question about how do you sustain? How do you do your time slicing? Oh, you know, mate, you know what it's like. I mean, there's no time for anything, really. There's a lot of time for everything and no time for anything. It's interesting. I try and do everything at once. And I think you kind of have to, to say that you're going to focus on one thing and one thing only if you're a business owner is pretty difficult. So in terms of our product, though, and the way that we sell, we've got one singular focus, and that's super important. But I think from a running the business perspective, I still have to get out there and do research. So I still have to get out there and have, I mean, this week I've got you know, 42 appointments or something this week on Zoom. And probably 20 of those are with bookkeepers, accountants, and cloud integrators, and just something that everyone goes through. Everyone's got no, you know, there's, I can't, I don't know anyone who's got any time. Even people that are unemployed tend to say they are oh, so busy and they haven't got any time. So I think everyone lives in their own reality around time so i like to focus on my reality which is you just got to do it what i've found is that having a lot of appointments for me is important because it keeps me on track and it keeps me focused i think when you have that it's like when you walk into a quiet restaurant you always get crappy service but a busy restaurant the service is good because there's always some people standing around you know talking shop when they should be focused on doing the work. So I'm pretty similar with the way I operate. So I think you can turn some of your research calls into a good use of time and into content. 
the podcasts I've been doing are not just podcasts. They're not just for the benefit of um, me or, or the guest or a viewer. They're for research as well. I get people on there. So, for example, in the second episode of our podcast, I got the two guys from a business called Saucy, which is a, a product sourcing business, which gets products um, sourced and created throughout Asia and, and the subcontinent and looks after everything from where to go for, for, for customers. That business for us will be a fantastic referral business moving forward. And for us to be able to learn about all the different challenges that a product owner faces is super important for us because a lot of our customers are product owners. Tim, I couldn't agree more that in an early stage business as a founder, you're going to be best served using your time talking to customers and developing relationships with the people who are paying you. I think like in an early stage, you want to, but this is not scalable. And in an early stage, you want to do intentionally unscalable things to understand things about your business that you never would be able to do once you actually hit that scale mode. I think once you start scaling, a CEO really just has three responsibilities. One is to set the vision for the team. Two is to make sure that there's money in the bank. And three is to talk to investors and to talk to uh, talent and recruit right talent. And on that last point, a, a good perspective to have on time is like, I kind of view myself as a router of opportunities to other people on the team. If I'm spending too much time doing a task that feels like I'm spending too much time on this particular thing. It just means this is my failure to make sure that this route for opportunity was routed to the right person in my team, or I don't have that person, uh, I don't have that talent in-house that I can route to, which means that this is a recruiting problem. That's a, that's a people problem. And if it doesn't justify routing to someone else, then it's probably not worth anyone's time anyway. So in taking that view, transition to like trying to shoulder everything myself and working 14-hour days on weekends, to actually getting a little bit of my bandwidth back once I took that perspective on things. But nothing is more important than talking to your customers in the early stage. Well, I've found that the best revenue driver in our business has been talking to customers that were customers. One thing that was very clear is we got a few customers on board early who we only had a couple that stayed out of our first half a dozen or so. And the reason behind that was the fact that they weren't adopting it properly. So the whole idea of customer success, and Dan, I know you managed, you um, mentioned that before, the whole idea of customer success is so much more important now than I thought it was five months ago. So we've got all of our revenue growth from existing customers, not from new customers. Our revenue growth of 300% month on month for the last couple of months has been from existing customers. The new customers are just finding their feet. So for us, it's about finding getting adoption immediately or sooner. So because currently adoption, we're probably starting to earn revenue from a, from a client in the third or fourth week rather than the first week. So for us, it's about getting heavy adoption at the front end and then building them up over time. And once they're in and once they're using it, that takes a couple of months for them to get truly comfortable. We haven't lost anyone that has been using it. We haven't said goodbye to any of our paying customers that had been with us for 60 days or more because there's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is all of their customers' payment information is in our platform. So very important that they maintain that existing database and they make sure that they keep feeding that because it affects their cash flow if they don't use the platform properly, which is super important from a retention perspective, but more so from a customer success perspective. They say churn is the biggest killer of software companies. You don't realize how true that is until you actually hit the pavement and building steamness into your product, like uploading your data into it. Every time you perform actions in the product or you gather data in a product, you become less likely to leave in the future. And thinking about and building those kind of features in is paramount to retention totally. Any founder to, to think about those kind of things like right at the very onset, you could save yourself a lot of headache. Yeah, if you can tie it to cash flow, revenue, or time, then it's um, very, very, very hard. 
Tim and Dan, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate that the two of you would bring your energy and time to this discussion and the value and learning that I've got from hearing the two of you speak about your experiences and what you're building with your amazing companies has just been tremendous for me. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It would be fantastic to do it again. Anytime, mate. Anytime. And to, to check in periodically. Yeah. Fantastic. Happy to be on and thanks for having me, Tony. Really appreciate yeah. it. Tim, great to yeah, meet you. Yeah, you too, Dan. We'll, we'll chat soon. Thank you. Hearing Tim and Dan share and explore was a wonderful experience for me, and I hope you felt the same. I will look to combine founders on future episodes and feel free to suggest potential guests. But that's it for today. Feedback is always appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.